Yeah, Sully, speaking of um, people, I would wear everything they wear. <laughs> Sully, up until this point, um, wears like a lot of, he has like a, a like a 10-gallon hat with a feather in it. and It's not a 10-gallon hat. It's like, but it, no, what do you call it? A stet, Not a Stetson. Maybe no. it's a Stetson. It's a hat with a feather in it, and he it's has like, like a, a fedora. Like, Zachary. And we are here with our second half, our part two of our conversation about bones and all. Uh, Zachary, where did we leave off in our last conversation? Yeah, last, last week was a misnomer because it was bones and some. <laughs> and now this week plus last week makes bones and all. Uh, oh my God, where did we leave off? I guess we're, I know we were going <laughs> chronologically through the narrative, so I think we are at the part where we're going to meet Marin's mom and some of the storyline with Sully is going to come to a head. Yeah, so we just introduced Lee. Oh yeah, we were like right in the middle of the film. Yeah, and, and we were talking about the way that Lee represents this other kind of ethic of being in the world as an extreme outsider. Um, and I was thinking a lot between our last recording and this one, the degree to which the film is doing this thing that, and I think we see, like, it's not the first kind of text to do this, the serialized um, uh, television show American Horror Story does a similar thing where um, the narrative kind of flips the traditional kind of alignments in the film and you either start off well, in an American horror story, you don't start off on the side of the monster or the sort of known villain, but you end up on the side of the monster or at least understanding, um, understanding the monster, um, or some monsters and not others. It's complicated. We're not talking about that text though. Um, and so bones and all does a similar thing, right? Where we're on the side of, these two young cannibals, these extreme outsiders who are in love, um, they are, I, I was thinking about, like, they're, so they're dangerous to other people, and we think about that, and the text asks us to think about that, like, right, that's where the, the various kind of ethical framings come in, um, what is the right way to be someone who is harmful to others, like, basically, how do you make a decision about, about who you inflict yourself upon I think is is a way to think about that um but they're also very harmed people right so Marin is just like fully abandoned we'll talk about when she meets her mom in a minute but fully abandoned by her dad um even like Sully is a danger to her um the two mystery cannibals they meet at the swimming hole are I, I think we are meant to understand as a danger to her. We'll talk about those those two folks in some detail. And Lee is kind of the only person who who is like very concretely in like a neutral zone, like not a danger to her, um, and she is not a danger to him. Yeah, and he kind of um, we see <clears throat> right away that he has like the potential for violence. Like that's kind of an inherent trait that all of these eater characters have is that they have to not just eat bodies but find ways of obtaining bodies um so it's not just like violence itself in this film that either poses or not poses a threat to Marin, um but it's the ideology and the rules behind the violence yeah i think that's that's part of um it's part of her figuring herself out in in the world, right? Is how do I figure out how to ethically go about doing this thing that I have this compulsion to do? Um, the book makes a very strong link to um, the author of the book is vegan, and um, she writes in her notes at the end of the book that the text it was very much for her about. Um, thinking about eating flesh, like being mindful about how we consume, how we, like the, the broader we consume flesh. Um, and so putting that narrative in um, behind a character who's a cannibal really kind of makes it pressing, right? Makes it more 
um, makes it more real, makes it more immediate. Um, and I think we see that a little bit in Bones and All, where, um, do you want to talk about the Marin and Lee's maybe first date when they're, they, they go and they rob the slaughterhouse he used to work at? Yeah, they have, like, this quiet kind of introspective moment, um, and have their first kiss while sitting above the cows who are, li- or pigs, right? No, it's cows. It is cows? Okay. Who are listening to pre-recorded music, which is supposed to pacify them and help them stay relaxed. And Lee kind of dismisses this with a chortle, like doesn't really think it's uh, a good faith uh, uh, set up for keeping the cows in a in a pacified state. Um, but it's kind of when they first, it sort of dawns on each of them that they've met a kindred spirit who can maybe uh, not just share this really specific kind of plight and lifestyle with each other, but also have like uh, compatible ways of proceeding into the world with that behavior and dealing with all the complications that arise from it. Yeah. And I, and I think it's, it's very telling like in that moment they're holding hands and it's very cute. Like the, this, and this scene has like all of this contradiction in it, right? There's this beautiful music, um, but it's playing this kind of big echoey cavernous space and the sounds of the cows are also echoing and, and it's very, um, like on an auditory level, that that mix of sound is kind of distressing. And then we see these two sort of beautiful young people who found each other and have this weird version of a, of a meet-cute, and they're holding hands, and their legs are dangling, and it's like the, the camera looks at them, and there's all these cues for the viewer to kind of link it up with like a teen romance. Um, and to be very much on their side and be very invested in their love story. Um, and, and that's, yeah, that's a contradiction of tension in that moment. It's kind of hard to watch. Um, it's uncomfortable, even at the same time that we're on their, on their side. And it's then when Marin is um, asking Lee, like, doesn't it bother you? And she's talking about the cows, right? She's in the cows kind of as a stand-in for, for eating people, which is, you know, doesn't it make you... Doesn't it bother you thinking about how that one has a cousin and a, a wife and a and a daughter or I forget the, a cousin for sure, um, which of course is not the way we think of the relationship of cattle to one another. So it's a clear, obvious uh, moment of transference. Yeah, um, and stop me if you don't want me to jump this far ahead, but it's the whole scene is really, um, I find, uh, then contrasted with, <clears throat> um, shortly thereafter, Lee and Marin are having, it's almost like a honeymoon. Like they're on the road and they're figuring out how they're going to like share this experience together. And they're, they don't come upon so much as they are come upon by, uh, two strangers who, introduce themselves and are also on the road and are also cannibals. Uh, and we learn over like a really kind of spooky campfire scene that there's one of them who is just sort of very, I don't know what you would say. Like he really plays up the sordidness of eating in a way that Marin and Lee never do, where he's kind of like laughing about it and making like, kind of gallows humory jokes, but we find out that his his pal, his accomplice, doesn't have this same kind of eater drive or like is not like an eater by by nature, but he's he saw his this other guy eating someone once and now has asked that he be taken under the first guy's wing and kind of shown how to sniff out victims and joins in on the eating with him and this lee is really kind of perturbed by this but Marin is just like she refuses to even believe that it's possible that this guy would not be kind of cursed with these urges and compulsions but would just choose to to be that way um 
what's the, what does she say exactly? Like that's impossible, or I don't believe that. Like she's almost in denial about it. Like just doesn't want to even address it, and storms off to their pickup truck to be away from these two. Yeah. So so they have two different responses. So um, the the two eaters they meet who um, we don't ever get a name. I think for either of them. Uh, I read. I read. Something. Oh yeah, with the one guy, it does have a name because he says about like I'm Brad, not Bradley, or something like that. Sure, they have names, but I don't. Remember yeah, them. I don't. I don't think the long haired, the the eater by whatever you want to call it, like the true eater, I don't think has a name. Uh, but the other guy, I think his name is Brad. Um, I wish I could remember. I know that I was reading something before. No, after the first time we watched the film. And the two the the two actors who play those characters are like fellow director friends of the director of the film, and they're just like doing these cameos for fun, which is um, kind of I I was amused by that when I read it. Um, and so the the excuse me uh, they've they've singled Marin and Lee out by smelling them, so they know that they are eaters. Um, they mention the the one who is I think true eater is a good way to describe that says you know we were downwind from you at the at the swimming hole yeah essentially confirming that they've been stalking them yeah and that they recognize them as eaters in particular yes yeah but they were able to detect them yeah through the smell and so they followed them a not inconsiderable distance yeah and I think it's I'm, I'm thinking about the um the slaughterhouse and how we can think about all of the various ethics of eating in relationship to like a factory farming or like Marin can't be in school maybe because that's too much like a slaughterhouse, right? Mm, People captive. That's interesting. Right. In a, in a building, um, Sully doesn't want, at least in what he professes, doesn't want any part in, killing at all again we have reason to be suspicious about that but that's what he um that's what he says about his own his own habits um did we talk about lee's ethic of eating like in in detail i don't remember no we did talk a bit about uh like his choice of of singling out the the you know the creep at the store who's harassing people as kind of speaking to his willingness to uh target people who are causing harm yeah so he he makes a point of um of targeting people that he thinks are doing harm or have some some kind of mark against them they're bad in some way um who also his and we'll talk about when he makes a mistake and slips up but he also equally tries to target people for whom there won't be a lot of collateral damage, so they aren't leaving a family behind or things like that. This is different from what happens in the book, um, but again, we're not talking about the book, even though our, if you, you, everyone should read this book. It's a wonderful book. Um, and so his, he's driven by like a completely different, right? Like it's it's very different from um, the the slaughterhouse kind of idea. Um, and then we get these two men who we could think of it as like like hunting or stalking them, right? Like they isolate them in the woods, they follow them uh, in their truck, they try to incapacitate them, they offer them alcohol. The one is teaching the other to hunt. It's there's kind of a parallel there between uh, Sully trying to imbue uh, Marin with all of his wisdom and and methods mm. and rules and strictures. That's a really, yeah, that's a, that's a good, uh, good observation. kind of like to think of it as the, the true eater of the, the two in the woods could almost be like uh, like an earlier iteration of Sully, like who's still clinging to the idea of having like a partner in crime, which when by the time Sully comes across Marin, it seems like this is maybe the latest in a long series of failed connections with other eaters. Whereas, like, the guy that we see at the campfire is, uh, has forged a bond with, like, a, a quote-unquote, like, non-eater who has chosen to join him in eating people. Yeah, who is just fascinated with and, and chooses to, uh, chooses cannibalism out of some kind of something else, not the compulsion that the rest of them share. 
Um, he is, I don't think it's an accident that he's a police officer. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, and that is named, like, explicitly. Um, but Marin and Lise, they're sitting around the campfire. They're drinking beer. I don't think Marin or Lee are drinking very much. Like, it's very clear that they're, um, kind of watching the other two. They are being cautious. They are not making any, it's, it's the most tense scene in the film, I think. They're doing a lot of listening and not talking, even though they're being asked questions and it maybe comes just short of feeling like an interrogation, but there's still just this sense of dread through the whole scene. And we, in a way where like with Sully, there's this feeling of unease and kind of queasiness and something seems off, but he never comes across until maybe the very end like the threat that these two do where it's just like clear right from the outset that these two are like a malevolent force. Yeah. Before they, before we understand why. Yeah. Um, and the, the two factors that make them, um, a malevolent force and, and sort of one speaks to Lee and one speaks to Marin. So the, the, the one that speaks to Lee is the idea of bones and all. So eating another person, not just in part, or not just, I guess, the soft bits or whatever, but eating, like, bones and all, the whole human, not a trace left. And it's Lee who says that's impossible. Um, and his he's disgusted with, with these other, um, with the one, right? So the true eater says he's had his full bones, as he calls them, and he's eaten about three whole people and of course his friend who's learning to be an eater who calls himself an eater but um but is not led by the same kind of compulsion or need um has not had his full bones and I think we're supposed to believe that they've sort of trapped they they think that's going to be Marin and Lee I guess it's um, definitely open to that interpretation yeah, yeah. or that they're going they want Marin and Lee to help them like you know, whatever they they have some role for them, whether it's helping them acquire someone or to actually consume them themselves. Yeah, it's un it's unclear. Certainly, we don't know. Yeah, for sure. We know that Lee and Marin feel threatened. Um, and then the thing that really disturbs Marin is not necessarily the bones and all piece, but it's um, that someone would choose to to eat human flesh and not um, not do it like essentially because they have no other option. Yeah, and it's a very good de- framing device for uh, getting us back in touch with where everybody's at, like, in their journey on this, like, this road of, of needing to subsist by eating people, where Marin is still so relatively new at it that she can still remember, like, or at least remember imagining a semi-normal life, like living with her father, going to school, like pretending at normalcy. Whereas Lee, we already get the impression and learn later a little more like clearly that he's lost most links to that. He keeps up with his sister and his family long distance, but or his mother long distance, but largely he's, uh, resigned himself to a solitary life on the road eating people and these two the two strangers at the fire are just like actively distancing themselves again like kind of what i imagine there being some impasse in sully's trajectory where he had to just decide that like he's essentially an eater before he's anything else um so I, I kind of see that the two reactions Lee's more mortified at this concept of bones and all that even as an experienced eater, he's never come across or been tempted to pursue as far as we know. Uh, and Marin is more just a gas that someone would give up. Someone who doesn't have to do this would make the choice to do it. Yeah. So let's talk about, um, let's talk about finding her mom. Mm-hmm. And then going off to be people and the ending scene and then the landscapes, I think is a nice. Yeah. 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 And so the journey, the, the thing that Lee signs on to do with Marin is way back 
we're kind of taking a step back chronologically, um, when they meet each other is essentially she's got her birth certificate and the name of the town her mom was born in and that's it. And she, all she knows about her mom is that her mom left when she was three. She couldn't presumably handle it, left her with her dad. Um, and her dad has given her just enough of a clue to, I guess, go find her mom. Um, and so Lee agrees to, um, go on a road trip with her. And this is part of how one of my favorite things about this film is it really embraces itself as like a very, like, I feel like it's a very American form, the road trip, right? Mm -hmm. Like open road driving, um, driving along a highway, sort of stopping where you stop and resting when you're tired and not having maybe necessarily an agenda, perhaps having an end point, but not necessarily being in a hurry to get there. Like that just feels like a very, um, very American and maybe even, um, like, like an American form that resists, like it's set in the eighties and the eighties is sort of the beginning of like capitalism. And it's maybe an American form that very much resists like late capitalist, like hustle culture is really starts to show up in the eighties and, um, corporate culture. And it's like, it's it's like the antithesis of that maybe. Yeah. The factory farm is really the most like, uh, you know, dystopian, symbol of like mass industrialization that we see in the whole movie everything else is very it's that i can think of is largely very rural um and yeah there's this kind of american ethos especially with lee's character of kind of like maybe less drugs but like sex booze and rock and roll like you know it's, it's got that road trip kind of vibe of like uh, of like being you know episodic kind of this odyssean like we're going to bump from place to place and we're going to encounter like wonders, but also monsters. Um, and it's kind of even that idea of like, like easy rider just as being like a classic American uh, counterculture film, but also like the quintessential road movie of like trying, like we're going to set out in search of the American dream or like in search of the heart of America. Like there, there's a real, concrete material thing they're after which is to meet Marin's mother but there's like a more abstract elusive like sense of home that especially later in the film starts to come into relief a bit more as they as Lee and Marin talk as they become closer and more intimate and share more and more and kind of have a better sense of a future they'd like to maybe have together or at least explore together. We get a sense of the idea of like somewhere in this land of opportunity, there's, there can be like a capital H home for the two of them. That's a really nice idea. And and I think it's really important that they don't have like their, their, their road trip is punctuated by various forms of threat but all of the forms of threat are tied to cannibalism right so it's either the threat of um and and those are the two tensions right that they just want to be together and maybe be like maybe settle somewhere maybe simply travel together um but yeah but then the tension with that is that like maybe they are going to be eaten or um, have to stop to eat or like this idea of eating interrupts them whether they are the threatening being or there's another being that is threatening them um that maybe like speaks to like maybe this is a commentary on that that very american form yeah certainly i mean i think even the fact that other eaters can identify them by their smell rather than say like some identifying physical mark like um, there's no like disguising here. Like there's something in their essence that that has identified them as as being uh, separate and denied this sort of normalcy that they both, to some degree. I mean, Marin has lived it. Lee presumably maybe lived it for a very short period of time. Yeah, that's um, the piece that I'm 
I'm writing and researching a little bit of like the cultural politics of smell. Um, and the cultural politics of smell are, um, smell is kind of really ousted in like by modernity and power is associated in a modern context with, um, very much with like a symbolic scentlessness, the same way that, um, different groups are marked by smell, whether it's a real smell, like say attached to a body by, um, maybe the labor that you do, uh, it may be an imagined smell. So, um, just kind of a permeating idea that, um, the, the phrase comes from Orwell in, in the piece that I'm reading. That's just simply the lower classes smell, right? So some of that might be body odor and some of it might be, um, like a, a, a conceptual, like not an actual smell, but, um, a kind of fear of contagion, I guess. Um, the same, uh, smell separates people, um, by sex and by class also in, in sort of the, the political history of, of smell. So there's um, sort of political notions and ideas of people of different races having particular smells that, again, may just be, um, on, on the one hand, are um, not literal actual smells, but more connotation, associative meaning, fear, anxiety, but also sometimes are actual smells associated with um, eating different foods, right? That uh, may be different from um, uh, what a majority culture eats or whatever in a number of ways, including smell. Um, the piece that I'm reading, I think it's really important. I'm, I'm working out what I think is important about Marin being, I almost said the only female cannibal, and that's not true. We'll talk about her mother. Um, I guess we're leading up to to the conversation about her mother. Um but one of the ways that women's bodies are are culturally signified as other and as other through like objection is being leaky bodies um, and un, uh, bodies with things that are uncontained fluids and so on, um, but that are also associated with smell, which is itself something that is undefinable and uncontainable and always speaks to an interior interiority that's like escaping like an interiority made uh made exterior yes um i don't know what i want to directly respond to and all that other than just um <laughs> also i mean just you're doing your own research on smell i've been doing kind of a deep dive the last few months into um <laughs> just a, a lot of the history of Western fascism and genocide. And there's a, a constant um, strategy that you, you have political strategy that comes up a lot when you're looking at uh, one group attempting to uh, other and vilify and ultimately commit genocide against another group that uh, maybe isn't as distinguishable from them visually, like whether it's, it's not necessarily like a racial essentialism, but you'll get stuff like, you know, in Serbia and Croatia where it's two people who to the layman don't necessarily look any different, but like the uh, opposing party will start to instigate the idea of like a smell and like that there's mm -hmm. this contaminated smell of the other that just becomes like taken as truth by by that people as a way of designating and persecuting another that is otherwise uh, not that easily distinguishable from them. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the 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 political ways that smell circulates. Right, is it gets weaponized or mobilized in the cementing of barriers between groups of people and and in, in the work of othering, especially. Um, one of the things that's interesting about the cannibals in Bones and All is that um, smell is is talked. I mean, like it's it's talked about quite frequently in the film. It's how eaters know each other, right? Like they understand each other at, at the very least as eaters by smell. But it doesn't seem like other people, like non-eaters, I don't think can smell it. Well, yeah, because we the the cop who's essentially training to be an eater, 
Um, we already know he's eaten people, but other than the, we don't get much insight from his buddy as to like what the transformation process is going to be, except that he's also teaching him how to smell out other eaters. Um, which is also one of the first things we see Sully teaching Marin, not specifically to smell out other eaters, but to smell out potential meals. So it's, yeah, it's funny. I mean, like, I think if you describe the plot about this movie, the plot of this movie to someone, or even just in broad strokes, they wouldn't anticipate such a, such a emphasis on smell in the, and such a stylization of smell. Yeah, and and I think, too, um, what I want to just build a little bit on what you're saying, which is that um, I mentioned in our first episode that I think there's something kind of analogous to queer coding, and that might be, right, like if you can learn as a non-eater to smell other eaters, it suggests that the smell is there, um, but it's not obvious, like you have to you have to tune your senses into it, which is what we joked about Gator earlier, but, um, but queer coding has, has historically been right. So like queer coding operates, um, we live at a pretty nice time where, um, queer coding can, can be more in the open and, um, accessible and, and isn't hidden in, 2023 the way that it historically has had to be hidden um but has had to operate as as a form that allows you to move about in a way that lets you be invisible to people who who would want to harm you um but visible to other people like you or allies or whatever right and so i think that's another kind of point in favor of that that analogy yeah absolutely i mean i think um and i think this is what a lot of people who have written and or just even talking about this film, is like the various queer readings of it, like they're both not, and I don't mean obvious in a derogatory, like that's so obvious. They're both like the most obvious readings, but like they're also the most complicated and kind of confounding. Um, and it's like you run the risk of either trying to deny like any kind of queer reading of it, which seems bonkers, but also like of oversimplifying like, a one-to-one analogy of like being a cannibal equals being queer in, in this world, you know, like, or is, is the metaphor, which is also way too simple. Um, which is to say that even with two episodes of devoted to, to this film, um, I think as far as that front goes, I could just encourage people to keep in mind as much as they can going into the film, like the, just to keep their mind open to as generous a number of queer readings as possible, but, uh, and also not to try to look for some sort of like code to crack about like what the film is trying to symbolize and and what the definitive meaning is. Yeah. I think if anything, it's trying not to symbolize some of, um, some of the things that cannibalism is, is often thought to symbolize in contemporary film. Um, I think often cannibal films, we would read them as sort of symbolically speaking to the way that we as humans are self-cannibalizing in a way that's analogous maybe to capitalism and poor resource management and um, endless useless expansion or greed or mindless consumption under like capitalism um, and and I think that having framing the film where we're following so closely with the cannibals who um, are not, I mean, with the exception of the two kind of scary men they meet are not being excessive and are not um, gleeful and are not mindless and, and are actually very, um, very concerned with their habits and very concerned with the ethics of their own being in the world I think it, the film very much resists, um, resists like that very easy kind of, um, that very, very easy analogy. Um, and, and it is the same with queer readings too, where we can find places where it links up, but it's not, um, it's not simple. It doesn't map on super easily. Um, let's talk about, speaking about self-cannibalization, let's talk about Marin's mom. Yeah, we 
our six films into this podcast, we have come across the unlikely event of two different films that feature a woman with no hands. Oh, yeah. I was like, what's the other one? Yeah. It's Titus. Except yeah. in this case, uh, Marin's mother has consumed her own hands because she's been institutionalized, unable to feed, is kind of... Uh, you know, it's like I was saying about how the 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 character by the fire sort of feels like an early iteration of like a possible Sully. And Marin's mother is sort of like if Sully had just or someone Sully's age had just resisted the urge to feed and eat all that time. Like it seems like you know, in as much as our three central characters, Marin, Lee, and Sully are all just like they're all big balls of contradictions. Marin's mother seems to be like the, I don't know, whatever, like the extreme end of all those contradictions, just like squeezing too tight where she's become, uh, you know, like just into a state of dereliction. Yeah, she, we, we learn from um, Marin stops in to see her grandmother at first. We learn that her mother has... Um, institutionalized herself. It's her own choice to be there. She does not think that she is fit or able to be in the world. And she's eaten her own hands up to her elbows. It's one of the hardest um, things to see in the film, I think. And she's written a letter to Marin, and you kind of piece out the tragedy of her having written the letter, obviously, before she's eaten her hands. Um, and in the letter, she basically says, like, people like us can't have anything, can't have love in this world. We can have, um, is it a room with four walls? Is that what she says? That sounds right. Yeah. Which is ironic because all she has now is a room with four walls. Yeah. And she doesn't want that for Marin and her only, the only other thing she can imagine for Marin is non-existence. And so she attacks her and essentially um it's going to i think in her mind it's a mercy killing is is yeah I, I, she doesn't kill marin that's that's not she lunges at her yeah it's i could see it being any i mean that's kind of how i've interpreted it that it's an attempted mercy killing it could even just be like the extreme ends of the condition that like it's so compulsive at this point that like unable to even eat herself any more than she already has. She's while recognizing her daughter and having this really kind of world shattering moment where she's confronted with her daughter again, after so much time, like still has the, the compulsive urge to just see her as like a potential quenching of that, that urge. Yeah, I mean, it, it does happen when she gets to the point in the letter that it's kind of spelled out in the letter that she wants to help her exit the world or something. It's it's pretty, I thought it was pretty clear from the, from the letter. But how could we separate those? Like, how could we, yeah. Sure, well, also, I mean, um, yeah, that's fair. But I mean, like, Marin's mother doesn't know where Marin, Marin's not reading the letter out loud. Right, right. And the mother is, like, heavily sedated as well. She's... Um, yeah. Even the voiceover by... The mother's played by Chloe Savigny. And even the voiceover of Savigny reading the mother's letter is kind of warbled and garbled and gradually becomes more and more unhinged through the reading. Yeah, yeah. It's really... Um, it's Yeah, it's a really hard scene. Upsetting stuff. Yeah, and then after um, there's kind of a crisis in Marin and Lee's relationship, and Marin decides that she's going to decide simply not to be like her mother. I'm just going to not be like that, which um, is so heartbreaking because it's like, which part? Because you, it's like not clear. Like, are you going to not? Do you mean you're not going to be a cannibal? Do you mean you're not going to? hospitalize yourself like which piece of this um and so lee this is um it's in in the in between in uh between visiting Marin's mother and deciding they're going to try to go and be people is how they phrase it um 
we get the story of Lee's dad, who he murders, he eats, um, as his kind of first, I think, conscious act of cannibalism that he... Yeah, that's... It feels deliberately left vague as to whether it's, like, his actual first, but it's certainly the first one that he's able to kind of uh, recollect and speak to any degree of uh, self-awareness. Yeah, and it kind of cements his ethic of, of um, taking out bad people, of, yeah. of having kind of a role that he can play. Um, but in between, he, uh, when Marin is having this kind of crisis about not wanting to be like her mother, he said, like, for us, there's, like, three options. You eat, you off yourself, or you end up in a place like that. Um, which I think really just drives home that it's not... Um, it's not like people eating beef to go back to the, the factory farm. It's not something that, um, that they can choose not to do. It is a true compulsion. Yeah. And it's one that, um, as we've said to like present so many dangers on both sides of the lines, like you have a society where what you're doing is explicitly a crime, obviously. And then also, uh, like a, counter society where because of the nature of the affliction like you're dealing with people like sully and the two men at the campfire where it's you're singled out by people who may not have your best interests in mind yeah absolutely so let's talk about the um i think we're going to jump to there's so much to say about this film i think we could uh, my brain is like filling in all these details yeah. we can unpack that we can unpack that um, but I think we should we should jump to the ending because it. Alternatively, yeah. we could unpack whatever little satchels we have left and then make everybody uh, <laughs> go see the movie if they want to know how it ends. No. <laughs> Fair enough. We're gonna talk about the ending, and if you haven't seen it, that's your problem. Or you could. You should go see it. Yeah, you should go. You can rent it now. Would you have to buy it? We bought it. We bought it. Yeah. But you... now we can watch it as much as we want. <laughs> that's a buying speaking case. of late capitalism yeah yeah um go see this film if you haven't already um and so Marin and lee decide they're gonna go i just love the phrase they said that we're gonna go be people and it's kind of unclear if they i mean i think they mean they're gonna try not eating but they might just mean they're gonna try living a domestic life together and and it's never specified which Oh, if those things are mutually exclusive, if... I think the big hint that it could be both is that when we see them in this state of domestic bliss, is it Lee that's cooking, like, a big slab of meat? Yeah, he's Some... cooking breakfast. I think yeah. it's eggs, but Oh, I is it eggs? I thought it was, like, a big... In any event, we see them eating, like, people food, which we see them eat throughout the film, They're but... eating people food. But... They're always eating people food. Sometimes they're just eating people. <laughs> that's what I mean. Yeah, people food. <laughs> Um, but, and it's, I guess it's kind of also like at that point, not that whether or not you eat someone doesn't matter, but at that, at that small window of the film where it's very idyllic, it really doesn't matter. Like all we need to know is that they found a system that works. Marin's, she in school or is she just working on campus? She's working in a campus bookstore because she's a voracious reader. Yeah. Earlier she says, we'll have to hit a bookstore at some point. Um, and so they hit a bookstore and they decide they're essentially going to live within walking distance of it and she's going to work there. And they have this little kind of gender reversed domestic situation where she's working and, and earning money and Lee is making, making eggs. Yeah, making eggs. I think he's, I think when he, when he enters their apartment, like his sister is going to come visit. It's so sweet. They've, got this little life together um and i think he's out grocery shopping when he comes home and sully is in the apartment he's also the way he's dressed in that last scene is very um like gen like he's wearing a women's shirt i mean he's wearing a women's shirt a few times oh lee is yeah 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 he wears a he wears like a woman's cardigan like quote-unquote quote-unquote women yeah style like feminine what we would conventionally see marketed as like women's clothes or feminine clothes yeah and he's wearing a very 
cute blouse in the last. I could, like I said in our first part, I would wear every single thing that um, that, that character wears. He's got such a good... They're both styled really well. We, this is not a tangent we're going to go on. Um, <laughs> and then we see Sully going postal. Yeah, Sully, speaking of um, people, I would wear everything they wear. <laughs> Sully, up until this point, um, wears like a lot of... He has like a... a like a 10 gallon hat with a feather in it. And it's not a 10 gallon. <laughs> it's like, but it, no, what do you call it? A stet, not a Stetson. Maybe no. it's a Stetson. It's a hat with a feather in it. And he it's has a, like, like a, a fedora, like a of. fishing vest kind of thing with all these knickknacks and badges all over his blazer. But when we see him at the end and he's ready to do murder on our two protagonists, he's got like his, it's like a blue shirt tucked into his shorts, like almost like a UPS or postman would wear, which is funny because, and he's wearing a baseball cap. I kind of wonder if he's supposed to be disguised as a postal worker, similar to how earlier in the film he was masquerading in a, in a repair van, you know, like it kind of speaks to like, we've already kind of talked about how he, even though he talks a lot about his own rules and his own, you know, kind of like this, uh, pure purified way of being like he's always accumulating stuff that he picks up along the way whether it's other people's hair that he from people he's eaten or like all the badges and paraphernalia on his jacket um the van that probably doesn't belong to him yeah there's a way that um another podcast that i really like that is Dungeons and Dragons fantasy podcast doesn't really matter. Describe like people wearing like um like janitors overalls as as wearing like don't worry about it green, um which is to say that like Sully's way of going of being invisible in in the world seems to be either wearing a uniform or something that looks like a uniform or kind of the trappings of certain kinds of, like, um, air conditioner repair, or, like, he really looks like a, a postal worker. Mm-hmm. Um, just, like, a very, like, he adopts a very particular kinds of dress, I guess, that allow him to to simply be a middle-aged man just moving about seamlessly in space. Yeah. I guess, again, kind of speaking to the, the intangible thing that makes him an eater that people can smell is not something that he can necessarily hide, like even when disguised to some extent. Yeah. And his disguises are conspicuous. They're conspicuous. (laughs) They're like there, but they're not They're Yeah. Like you say, like this is not, it's not an air conditioner repairman. This is not a postal service guy. Um, He's like a tinker. Like, he'd go around collecting things and then, like, trying to resell them, except he goes around collecting things and then trying to resell, like, a uh, like a, a lifestyle of, like, a, a particular way of being an eater. Yeah. And doesn't have many potential buyers. Yeah, but, so, Marin comes home and she sees his bag is is the first thing. And I think it's, it's interesting, right? So we know that he has this really hyper-developed sense of smell. And she doesn't smell him first, right? She sees she sees his bag first. That's how she knows he's there. We um, also know that he was confident enough in his like physical prowess and sneaking ability that he just left the bag there for her to find before he grabs her from behind mm-hmm. with a knife, with his hunting knife that we've seen him prepare Cornish hens with earlier. Yeah. And so he throws her on the bed and he talks about knowing her and he's erratic and he's upset and he mentions that that it's um there's a conflation between eating and killing and and sexual power it feels like a a rape to a certain extent i think the way he's like mounted himself on top of her and is threatening her with the knife and kind of cooing and trying to determine reality like dictate reality more than ever in that scene where he's they're all very demonstrative statements like talking about and especially when he refers to himself in the third person insistently it's kind of like he's narrating his own story at that point 
Yeah, and and he makes it very clear that what what bothers him about Marin is that she knows him mm-hmm. too deeply. Um, and earlier, she find he finds her on the road in a brief period between after seeing her mother, where she and Lee um, are separated briefly, and he tries to convince her that you know, they eat this woman together and they dried off next to each other is a thing that he kind of really attaches to, um, which is, I think you've talked, Zach, about about him having kind of incel vibes where he's, like, really attached to this thing where he's like, I've never done that. I've never dried off next to someone. That means something. Whether you like it or not, Marin, like, that means something. Yeah, and she has to insist that... Um, and and she insists to him like that can mean something for you, but like if if those feelings don't go both ways, then then not there's nothing to do about them. Yeah, which results in him calling her the c word, which is like the most ostensibly incellular he is through the whole film, probably. Yeah, and it's it's super interesting. Two films made by dudes where we see like almost the exact same conversation happening because that's the almost the exact same conversation that happens in in Mother. Yeah, that's interesting, actually. Um, Yeah, and they both are really well-done scenes. Like, they're speaking to... um, They're they're speaking to a a real lived reality for women and the vulnerability of of the unpredictable uh, anger and rage um, of men and of men who you, you turn down. Um, yeah, the risk of, of rage or violence or, or whatever it happens to be. I once had, this is, I don't know if I'm going to keep this in, but, um, I once received a phone call from someone who, um, it was, what had clearly happened is a stranger had given a man a fake number at a bar because you don't do that if you trust someone, someone who didn't. Um, didn't want to anger a man by saying, no, I won't give you my number. Um, said, sure, no problem, wrote down a number, and it was fake. And it was really funny being, I mean, it was really scary, but it was really funny also being on the other end of the phone with this guy who, like, was having a conversation with two people at once where he was irate, he was really angry, he kept insisting that I should be the person who he met at the bar and like there was half of him that was like recognizing that I wasn't like, so he'd keep saying like angrily kind of demanding that I be this person and also want to see him. And then also angrily stating that she gave me a fake number. Um, and that, and, and like, again, both at once, like I had to hang up on him and not answer my phone. Um, because he kept calling back, even though, like, I was like, what is happening? You must understand that I'm not the person, like, I am not the person who you're mad at. Um, but, yeah, and it, it just speaks to that, this kind of confused, entitled rage that that is not coherent, that doesn't make sense, right? Um, that I think is some of what Sully is experiencing in that final scene. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um. Yeah, in in a way where it's um, it I don't know it's done very simply like it's almost just like a representation of that kind of like tantrum that may turn murderous at any point, and then that thread is paid off by his uh, actual attempt at murder in the film's climax. Yeah, he tries to. It's unclear what he is aiming like if he's aiming to murder them. It's unclear. Um, if he's come there with a specific plan or not, like that's, um, yeah, that's, that's not super, super clear, but he ends up in a tussle with Marin and Lee and Marin and Lee end up murdering him in a bathtub in a way that's like somewhat sexual. Um, there's a lot of like writhing and moaning. Yeah. Um, but it's also clearly like he's a threat and and it's not an enjoyable scene and all of those good things. And then we get the, the closing scene. So in the tussle and in that 
that whole mess, Lee ends up being um, stabbed and his lung is punctured and Marin tries to insist, you know, we can't call an ambulance, they can't come here because then, like, they'll know about us, right, is the, um, uh, is the implication. They'll find Sully, it's just, like, any hope of having, like, that life as people that they've worked so hard to have will be gone. Yeah, and then we, um, essentially says, and I think it's implied that he wants her to eat him, like, bones and all, right? I think that's the... Yeah. Yeah, so he he says that he wants to be eaten, that that's what he wants from her. Um, I think it's the only eating that we don't, like, we know happens and we don't see that it's left in... Yeah, it's done in a very, like, kind of like a time-lapse sort of, um, where, like, the audio cuts out and we sort of see them clutching each other on the floor, but uh, it's it's largely implied. Yeah, and I think for me, and I think this is a, a nice note to end on, is that um, the, the ending moments of the film, we get interspersed these images of the apartment that are empty with just little things that let us know that that the story is real, that it's not all a fantasy, which is like Lee's Paca shell necklace under the bed and um, little little details like that interspersed with um, these images of Marin and Lee in this sort of undefined landscape that's not the same as the landscape they visited, although it's very similar. Their clothes are different, we've determined. Slightly different. So uh, Lee is, it's unclear. He's meant to if he's he's shirtless for sure. It's unclear if he's meant to be if he's nude or just sort of partially um, obscured. But um, they end up. I guess the 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 ending scene places them. The ending scenes interspersed with the the very sad empty apartment. The end of this possibility of being human and not being cannibals or finding a human way to be cannibals is interspersed with kind of their entry into um, what feels like those opening shots, that imaginary America that in the opening shots, we get these landscape images that are um, watercolor. They're, they're flat. They're two dimensional. Still life. Still life. They're beautiful and representational, but um, too simple and uninhabitable. Not, they're not, they're not real. They're not the space that they, um, they're fundamentally different from, from the America that they can drive their truck through and exist within. Yeah, and I will say, perhaps in parting, that there's also still this kind of sense of hope in that we see that the the apartment is now empty, it's been scrubbed of blood and all evidence, so there is still this idea that maybe Marin is you know, as, as the lone survivor from all these characters is, uh, who knows, you know, she's on the, on the road again. She's maybe not, but there's like the kind of lack of any closure there could also like point toward a possibility. Yeah. I think, I think I go back and forth between deciding if the ending is, um, all possibility, right? So, um, that that the world is the thing that she has to make for herself going forward. Um, and she's equipped with all these different stories about how to be in the world and her experiences, and now she gets to go and make that for herself. Or if I think it's completely hopeless that she's sort of between two panes of glass, um, stagnated um, existences, uh, is two-dimensional for her. Maybe it's both. And maybe it's both, yeah. Maybe she could never do it with Lee, and as sad as it is, like, there's the idea that now she's consumed him, she can take him with her, but, like, she can't take him with her in the sense of, like, what they had planned as partners. Yeah, I think there's, um, if there's one thing I'm not conflicted about, it is that we are not meant, that we are, um, we are meant to understand her her action of eating him as um, 
it, it is meant to be about, um, can I try? Yeah. It's not consumption. It's consummation. It's con. Yeah. That's beautiful. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. That's the, that's our time out. That's the end of the, uh, that's the bell that signals the end of the sport of talking about this film. Yeah, the end of season one, although I believe we are doing a short recap show before season two begins. Yeah, so next Friday we will have a little, um, a nice, a short little episode where we just reflect on how the season went and introduce our texts for season two for you, and we'll let you know how season two is going to work. And yeah, thank you so much for being along for the seven episode journey with me, Zachary. Thank you all, friends, and join us <laughs> Next time for a little cat-sized episode. Oh my goodness, a cat-sized episode. I love it. All right. Uh, yeah. All right. Toodaloo. Toodaloo.